Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Chi, who's a third-year resident at Washington University in St. Louis. David is originally from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He completed college at Duke and medical school at Harvard. He's interested in reconstructive microsurgery and peripheral nerve. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd love to get started by hearing kind of the big picture overview about your program at WashU. The program here at WashU, uh, I would say it's an iconic program with like a very long history stretching back to the post-war years with, uh, you know, the big names like uh, James Barrett Brown and Bill Ray Blair. You know, those years when plastic surgery was taking off and then it stretched for decades of leadership under, you know, legendary kind of surgeon scientists like Susan McKinnon. And now, uh, most recently, our new chief, uh, Justin Sachs, who's a dynamic leader, uh, taking us into new areas. And I think this is a great program. I've been here for uh, just over two years in my third year now. And, you know, I'm just constantly feeling challenged every day, getting better. And a big part of that is I think the St. Louis area offers us incredible surgical volume. And that's something that I think is key in surgery residency. There's rarely more than one or two residents scrubbed into any case. And so a lot of the times, even as a junior resident, you have a lot of autonomy and a lot of oversight as well. But it's often, you know, you're the only resident in the case. And I definitely feel challenged and pushed to get better every day. I know that you're not the only integrated residency program in Missouri. So can you comment on if there are any changes in your operative volume based on that? That's correct. I believe there are two other integrated programs in Missouri. One is Mizzou in Columbia, a few hours west. And the other is right in St. Louis, the St. Louis University program. At least in my three years here, I haven't felt any encroachment or felt that there's any limitation in case volume. As uh, you may all know, St. Louis is pretty good at uh, trauma. So in terms of reconstruction, I think there's more than enough cases to go around. And for the non-trauma uh, reconstruction areas of plastic surgery, St. Louis here, I think, is in a very large catchment area. So I think the WashU kind of uh, catchment area stretches from basically Chicago down to Texas. And so there's a lot of patients just coming into clinic. So yeah, even though there are other uh, programs in the state, it's not really something I felt like, oh man, there's nothing to do today. Or, you know, man, call is just way too slow tonight. So, you know, I feel that it's great multiple programs for people to apply to, but it doesn't really limit our uh, case volume. So now I'd love to hear about how much plastics exposure you get across the first three years. So uh, this is actually one big change to our program. And I was fortunate to kind of take advantage of it. So our intern year, you get uh, one month of uh, plastic surgery, 11 months of general surgery rotations. You're largely considered a, a general surgery intern, and that's fine. And then second year, now it's a nine months of plastic surgery and three months of basically things that are associated with plastic. So on those three months, uh, you will rotate through anesthesia, orthopedic hand, and uh, other uh, rotations like dermatology, 
These are things that are very related to us. And you spend the you know the bulk of your time now on plastics as a second year. And uh, as a third year, it, it's more of the same, 10 months of plastic surgery. And I say this is a big change because previously it was only three months of plastics my second year. And then now that's stretched to nine months. So I think it's a great change. It happened before I started second year. So I loved it last year. And what's the experience like when you're on some of those non-plastics services? As an intern, when you're on general surgery, it's a really amazing experience. I actually really enjoyed my intern year because, so one, general surgery is incredibly strong at WashU. Just about every like uh, general surgery service you rotate on is probably uh, among the strongest in the country. Like there's faculty who are presidents or whatever of all these societies. And so these are very well-developed divisions of general surgery. And that's important because it means they have a lot of mid-level support. There's a lot of NPs and PAs on the floor. So as an intern, I got to operate an incredible amount, like kind of a lot more than I was used to. And from talking to my med school classmates who like match to like programs like, you know, UCSF or, you know, other Boston programs, a lot of times they were manning the floor. And that definitely was not my experience here. So I think my education as an intern was terrific. And it sounds like that's an outlier. You know, obviously it's hard to say because I only experienced one program, but I loved it as an intern year, as much as you can like intern year. And then, uh, you know, as a second year, I spent a month on uh, orthopedics hand. And I think uh, a common theme you'll hear throughout this interview is there aren't really any weak specialties at WashU. And so that definitely was great. That month on ortho hand, you know, some of my huge names, I think uh, Dr. Marty Boyer was the president of like the hand society. He's like the orthopedic hand surgeon that I spent like the most time with. You learn a lot. You learn a different way of doing things. And they definitely were, you know, treated me in a friendly manner. And I think overall, it's good to have this exposure on all these services because they are the ones that will be consulting you later for, you know, either sternal reconstruction on thoracic surgery or vascular groin flaps and ACCS, uh, which is like acute critical care surgery for all whatever traumatic reconstruction. So it's uh, good to spend that time. And I think it's been a great time as a junior resident so far. And what are some of the different sites that you rotate through? So there actually aren't all that many uh, different sites. So the main hospital that like the majority of the residents are at three quarters of the time is the main Barnes Jewish Hospital. It's this uh, huge hospital. It's like a thousand beds. And you spend, you know, the bulk of your time there as a resident. We also do have an adjoining uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital. It's right next to Barnes. So even though it's like it's a separate standalone hospital, it's basically just a minute walk away on the overpass. And that's like we, where we spend the bulk of our time. In our senior resident years, four through six, there is like another hospital within the system. It's called the Barnes Jewish West County. And that hospital is where we get a lot of our aesthetics training and our resident cosmetic clinic is out there. But I think it's kind of convenient. You don't really have to spend a lot of time traveling between hospitals. There's basically those three main hospitals that you're at. Under our new leadership, we are trying to expand into some of the neighboring hospitals. And the benefit of that will, will be able to you know, offer 
like wound coverage or increase our flat volume for the other surgical specialties at those hospitals, whereas we're kind of just manning like these three hospitals for now. And are there any independent residents or fellows? There are no uh, independent residents. So this is a six-year program. We match at three residents a year. There is an optional personal development year. People usually take that either after a second year or third year. So that's why we have 19 total residents. We had someone do a research year. We do have a two to three fellows a year. So two of these are through the Plastics Hand Fellowship. The other fellow is Dr. McKinnon's Nerve Fellow. And I think the experience with fellows is always kind of uh, dependent. There's a large component that's dependent on the fellows, but also kind of the program culture. And so I don't feel that the, the fellow detracts from the interesting cases or that you often feel like you're, you're boxed out by these fellows. So one is just that the sheer case volume is so high. There's no shortage of hand trauma. And Dr. McKinnon is still operating at a very uh, incredibly high tempo. So I know she'll often have two rooms and her resident, her fellow are still often like the only ones scrubbed in with her. And so I guess like theoretically, uh, it's possible that, you know, sometimes the fellow can take the lead in a case where a senior resident may want to have that responsibility. I think uh, that is outweighed by our program culture of having a lot of resident autonomy. And as well, just there's so many, so many cases, it's hard for that to really be a factor. Can you tell me a little bit more about the professional development year? It's very open-ended, and I think it's become more so under our new chief, uh, Dr. Justin Sachs. So I think in the past, it was primarily, oh, you can go into one of the basic science labs that we have, or you could do clinical research. So it was very much kind of a focus to research here that I think is usually is like the most common track but the plan is to open it up. You know, people can do an MBA. They can spend time with the FDA, do we're steps towards either drug or technology development, as well as if they're interested in like other uh, research labs that we may not have here. I believe uh, the plan is to open it up. So basically, as long as you're doing something that you can describe as helpful to your career in some way, it'll be available to you. And, you know, I don't have the details uh, now because, you know, Dr. Sachs just came in February and then we have this whole COVID thing. So, so I think uh, we'll have uh, more information, I guess, once people start going through it. And it definitely is open for more than a one resident at a time or one resident in a class to take this a development year. It is an opportunity that's available to every resident if they want to do so. Yeah, it is. If one resident wants to do it to all three residents that year, yeah, that's totally fine. I think the program would just need to know, so kind of coordinate the call schedules for the upcoming year. Speaking of that, what is call like? Good question. Uh, Call here is uh, very busy, and it's split up into junior call and senior call. So every night there is a junior resident on call, and there's a senior resident on call, seniors, in our program, our years four through six, and then the juniors are twos and threes. We split it into like even days and odd days, and even days are kind of the home call. You're covering only plastic surgery consults, but it's the odd days of the month which challenge you to become, a, let's say, a better person, because that's when we, you cover both 
hand trauma and face trauma. And that can be very busy in St. Louis, especially in the summer. And so it's not unheard of like to have up to 25 to 30 consults a day on these odd days. And it really does push you because in your mind, you're just uh, triaging. Okay, let's see. Um, ischemic finger, got to go see that. Versus, oh, you know, closed face fracture. I can see that, you know, sometime when, you know, there's nothing emergent. And so you really just learn how to think things through very quickly. You develop uh, mental frameworks for evaluating these consults. And you become very fast with procedures. And I think probably the biggest thing you learn from that is just the mental toughness. Because, you know, so now we have like Epic or EMRs on our phones. (laughs) So... You look at the console list. Oh man, I'm six behind. Okay, no, all right, no big deal. Uh, two of those are emergent. If I get through these two, okay. Without getting another console, I'll be fine. And then you know you're in the middle of a procedure, and it goes off twice more, and you're like, oh man, you know. But somehow you always get through it. You develop the surgical kind of wisdom of okay, this is going to the OR, so I need to call my senior right away. Versus this looks bad, but I know I can handle it and. I don't need to call my senior because I know I can manage it and the patient will be safe, but I'm just going to be very busy and stressed. And that's fine because you are trained for it. The senior residents do kind of train you and educate you when you start out as a second year and you're seeing these consoles for the first time. There's always someone uh, walking you through. <laughs> it makes you a better person. It's, it's challenging, but now as a three, maybe going into winter, I feel more comfortable and it's not as stressful and not really scary anymore like it was last year. And what's the mid-level support like for the plastic services? So I would say the mid-level support uh, currently is not very great. Unlike the general surgery services that we rotate on as an intern, you do kind of get spoiled because there's so many NPs and it's amazing. And then, you know, when you come on to the plastic service full time, it's really the, mostly the residents managing all the inpatient issues. I think it's uh, doable because a lot of our patients are like consult patients, you know, vascular, thoracic, general surgery, consulting us for wounds. But it does become a challenge not having kind of just someone sitting on the floor because one, the volume is so high. So a lot of times you're in cases and there is like, oh, manage this floor stuff. And that is challenging. And so that was one of the main things that every junior resident mentioned to Dr. Sachs when he arrived. He's like, hey, you know, uh, what can I do better? And you're like, we could definitely use some mid-level support. And so I know that we are currently interviewing for that. So hopefully, I guess whoever's listening, by the time, you know, if you end up matching here, and then I guess like two years from now when you start on plastics, I think that will be a huge benefit that you'll have and I'll be a senior then and I'll just be salty that you guys have it and I didn't back then. So hopefully that'll be the case. It is something that it's not great here and is being addressed. Is there any opportunity for elective blocks? Yes. So I believe in the senior years, uh, four, five, and six, or or more five and six, there are uh, elective months that you can take. I believe it's one month in PGY-5 and one, at least one in PGY-6. And they're mostly used for people, you know, applying into fellowships 
I believe they apply in their fifth year. And so if they have a dream fellowship program, they'll rotate there as kind of like a sub-I, which unfortunately uh, you guys uh, didn't really do this year. And then I think it's common for, I think, people in their PGY six year to use their elective months either to like global health or just like spend some time with a faculty member at somewhere else that they really just want to learn from. Are there opportunities for like global health things, either a full month or shorter mission trips? There are opportunities for, I believe, up to one month during the six years of the program. It's not something I'm like intimately familiar with, but I do remember like in the last two years, the senior residents will go away on some global missions trip and then they'll present basically everything they learn or interesting cases. So I believe it's uh, up to a month. Either you take at least two weeks to four weeks on these uh, rotations. And are those something that some of the faculty at your institution take on an annual basis? Or is it more like the residents arrange them of their own accord? It it is something uh, that is more resident-driven. I don't believe there are faculty that make this an annual trip to like a certain country. And can you tell me a bit more about the cosmetic experience? Do you also have like dedicated aesthetic months or is it more like sprinkled throughout the training? The most of our aesthetic experience is at the Barnes Jewish West County Hospital. It's the third hospital I mentioned that's not in a downtown like big Barnes Jewish Hospital and Children's Hospital. We spend three to four months of the years four, five, and six. And you do a lot of like the, there is still like a lot of the standard breast reconstruction, but that's where you'll have the cosmetic breast, the craniofacial aesthetics. And the main reason is there we have our own like a private practice slash academic practice out there. It's called West County Plastic Surgeons of WashU. And it's staffed by our program director, Dr. Marissa Tenenbaum, as well as one of the other senior faculty, Dr. Terrence McCatton. And so they both do a breast reconstruction, but they also have their own stream of like private practice patients through this West County Plastic Surgeons. And that's where we get the you know body contouring, cosmetic breast, facial aesthetics. And I think that is a strength of our program because Mike's background from like a very academic programs is sometimes that facial aesthetics is a little harder to get at the very academic programs because there is like turf issues with like ENT and oculoplastics. And so it's really helpful to have like a very strong WashU affiliated private practice that will let residents operate a lot. And I think that's the key word because at other programs that do have like these private practices, the people running those uh, practices, they're very marginally affiliated with whatever academic program. And so the resident often much of an observer because the person running that private practice is not as, I guess, like that's still their primary business. Whereas for us, it's a private practice, but it's also meant to be a training opportunity. And so I think that's something that's unique. Obviously, I don't know that much about the other programs, but that was just my kind of gist from when I was interviewing and talking to other, some of my resident friends. And I mentioned there is like the resident cosmetic clinic. So that's basically these patients will contact this resident cosmetic clinic and say, hey, I'm interested in this procedure. And then the resident will go in and evaluate it, evaluate the patient, work them up for surgery. And then, you know, if they're suitable, we'll be able to book the case and then operate as 
as the primary surgeon. There is attending oversight at every step, but the idea is that you are going to be basically the person making the decisions, both preoperatively, intraoperatively, and as well as postoperatively. I don't know why I said postoperatively, because we don't have any complications in these clinics. Is that just during the sixth year, or does that start earlier? The resident cosmetic clinic starts in years four, five, and six. So when you're out at the West County rotation, you have that resident clinic once a week. So you can start getting that experience as a PGY-4. And that's the whole point is that graduated responsibility. It's a reasonable goal to hope that, you know, a, like a chief resident can perform something complicated like a facelift by the end but obviously not as a PGY-4. And so that's a point of this cosmetic clinic is that you are the one making these decisions, but there's always attending oversight. And gradually, as you come back each year in the senior resident years, four, five, and six, you become more and more proficient such that the attending can step in less and less as you go on. And I think that does kind of take the pressure off because if you know if only have three months as a chief resident, Oh man, I got, you know, I have three months to, you know, learn how to do all this cosmetic stuff by myself. Whereas it's stretched out for like nine to 12 months for us. Do you get any experience with gender affirmation surgery? That is something that we do not have as much volume right now. Most of the experience right now is the top surgery. In terms of like the, the gender affirming bottom surgery, We've only had several cases of those, but we are planning on doing more. So this is primarily done by actually our associate program director, Dr. Snyder Warwick. She's collaborating with some of the urologists to do these combined gender-affirming surgeries. And that's something that our new chief, Dr. Sachs, has made a point of emphasis to try and increase the volume. And just kind of, I guess, where we are in Missouri because of that, there hasn't been a huge volume of that going on. Depending on if you're a glass half full or half empty type of person, that means there is a lot of volume to come. So that could be a very good a training uh, opportunity as well as a patient care opportunity in the near future. And I do know that Dr. Sachs is pursuing that heavily. Do you know anything about how research residents are funded? Research residents, I know that their funding is not contingent upon external approval or external funding sources. However, you know, it is encouraged. And if they do win some funding source, you know, that's great. Looks good on the CV, helps the division. But if you do decide to take a research here, you still are guaranteed your resident salary. And are there any other perks about your program you'd like to share? In terms of uh, perks, when you take call, there's obviously food vouchers. And um, if you present at any conference or if like your abstract gets accepted, the program will you know pay for you to go to that conference, uh, pay for lodging, travel, anything else. I believe we are working on a loop fund. That was something that when Dr. Sachs first came, it was one of the points of emphasis. Because I had purchased my loops already, I kind of just stopped paying attention to that. So I would expect there to be a loop fund at this point, since uh, so many people asked about it, more like the current interns and PGY2s, that I would expect us to have loop funding. And then in terms of like education, so we'll often have like visiting speakers or professors 
come here to do a cadaver course, and those are often free of charge. Ben, what are the research expectations like at WashU? The research expectations are that in your senior resident years, you have to be working on a research project each year. And that's to be presented at our annual resident research day. In the junior resident years, years one through three, it's not expected, but it's definitely highly encouraged, especially in the second to third years. The understanding in your intern year is to you know focus on becoming a good doctor, learning how to manage patients. If you can do research and still you know take care of everything else, that's terrific. There isn't any like institutional expectation or pressure to do research as a junior resident, even though it is highly encouraged. And I think it's something that you're able to balance. I mean, as an intern, I worked on things uh, and then I was able to go out to San Diego ASPS my, my second year to present stuff. And so it's definitely doable. I think it's all about how you choose to spend your time. And it is encouraged, but not expected as a junior resident. And what area of plastic surgery would you say that residents come out with the strongest experience in? So this is a, an easy question. So at WashU, I think for the last few decades, we just kind of have been known as a very heavy peripheral nerve and hand program. And that's definitely the case. We'll have like visiting professors come and like listen to our conferences, our weekly conferences. And they're like, whoa, it's like I you know, landed on the planet of, of nerve or something. So uh, I, know I would say that that would be an area of like uh, institutional excellence that we will continue. And now with Dr. Sachs coming in, who's very heavy, a microsurgeon, and he's very intent on expanding the, the reconstructive uh, microsurgery exposure and curriculum, basically head to toe, free flap reconstruction will be in a very strong area of excellence for us uh, moving forward. So now I'd like to focus a little bit more on the program leadership. You've already mentioned him a few times, but introduce me once again to Dr. Sachs. Our new chief, uh, chief of the division, Dr. Justin Sachs, he arrived here uh, February of 2020. Uh, this year, right before COVID, kind of became a huge deal. He arrived from uh, Johns Hopkins, as people may know. He was a very senior in the faculty there and was very hands-on in educating residents at Hopkins. And he's you know, been very active in microsurgery. He's a section editor of uh, JRM. And so for me, someone when I'm going into a micro, uh, I was you know, very excited that he came. He's definitely a very uh, strong, dynamic personality, which I think is uh, terrific for us because a prior characteristic I described to WashU is that you know, every other surgical specialty is very strong. That does include things like ENT, doing some of the uh, head and neck microsurgical reconstruction, even like orthopedics, which is one of the strongest in the country here. Some of their ortho hand surgeons were also doing like lower extremity free flaps, hand free flaps. And so one thing that I think is terrific about him is that he's really expanded either collaboration as well as kind of expanding our indications for collaborating with all these other surgical fields. And so I think his arrival is huge. He definitely has uh, big ideas, which I think is great. You know, you bring someone who is very accomplished from an external institution and they can kind of bring their own experiences 
you know, having that diversity of experience as well as ideas is huge. So, you know, it's been great having him on the last 10 months or so, and he's going to take us up to the next level. And how about your program director? So our program director, she's Dr. Marissa Tenenbaum. She's a graduate of the WashU residency program, and she's one of the main drivers of our West County Hospital experience. And she's like obviously a very accomplished breast reconstructive surgeon as well as aesthetics. So I have not had the good fortune of like uh, spending too much time with her as a junior resident, but all the seniors have said that, you know, they learn a lot from her. She's uh, great to have, you know, having that private practice as well as the academic kind of combination person. She's a, a, a terrific role model and, you know, great person to have has as a program director. Just to talk about how the program leadership is since uh, we're discussing Dr. Tenenbaum. So uh, she is receptive to like the resident feedback. So I'd mentioned how for the longest time, the second year residents were still basically spending nine months of their second year on general surgery. And so the residents uh, a year above me, bless her heart, they kind of made it a point to say, hey, you know, maybe we don't need to like spend three months as an HPB console resident, you know, doing Whipples. Maybe we don't need to do that. And so she's like, all right, yeah, well, let me just uh, bring it up to, you know, the general surgery leadership. And all of a sudden, as a second year, I was spending nine months on plastics and three months on kind of plastic adjacent uh, specialties. And so, you know, and that like really benefited our education immensely because, you know, if you're going to work hard, it's kind of more ideal to work hard has something to do with your career. And I know you mentioned Dr. McKinnon briefly, but for anyone who doesn't know her, can you tell a little bit about who she is? Dr. Susan McKinnon, she is a legendary figure in plastic surgery. She was the chief of the division from, I believe, 1994 to 2020. And she was basically the first plastic surgeon to do a nerve transfers back in the 90s. And, and she's a terrific role model as a surgeon scientist because when she did the first nerve transfer, she had all the basic science, all the translational experiments that would indicate that it worked. But everyone, the whole field was still very skeptical. Neurosurgery, orthopedics, plastic surgery was very skeptical. So when she did the first nerve transfers, there was like a lot of academic backlash, like, oh, you know, this is no way this is happening. This can't be the nerve that's doing this. We know that nerves don't do that. And so she's been a great role model in terms of like perseverance and but not just kind of like the sentimental perseverance, but perseverance that's backed by the hard work in the lab. And so, you know, she persevered on, and then sooner or later, the results kind of spoke for themselves. More case series of these nerve transfers, primarily in the upper extremity to start with, but now also kind of expanding it to the lower extremity. And over the decades that she's been chief, that is what has made Washu known to be the place to be for a peripheral nerve. And the great thing is she is still very active and plans to be. She is very into wellness, yoga, meditating. And so it's terrific because she's planning on still being here and operating at a high volume, researching and publishing at a high volume for many more years. She has no plans slowing down. Even though she's not the chief anymore, she's still like a full functioning faculty member. And what role do residents have in department decision-making? 
residents have a lot of say in, in the resident curriculum. Like that example I mentioned for about the second year, you know, interacting with students in terms of like student education, as well as having a say in the match process, they do take our input into consideration. I haven't been privy to the match meetings. I think that's usually the senior residents. For the areas of the department life that are closest to the residents, I would say our opinion is solicited and taken into account. And now can you tell me a bit more about the relationships amongst the residents? Amongst the 19 residents that we have right now, you know, everyone gets along. I wouldn't say there is a kind of a specific a social type. It's not like everyone goes out to the nearby bars after like a long case. It's really what you make of it. I think uh, we have, you know, all personality types. You know, if there's like groups who want to go to a bar after like a long free flap case, there's groups that want to, you know, go bake pies or, you know, uh, go home to their kids. And so, you know, it's really uh, what you want to uh, make of it here. There's no like, social expectation to partake in any activity. And so, you know, I think everyone gets along. I hang out with my uh, co-residents. I do think you, you probably are stronger with the people that you were junior residents with. So for me, it's year above and the year below. It's a, it's a good group. You know, I like hanging out with my co-residents as well as the twos and, and the fours just because I know them. I, I've spent the most time with them. And now a little bit more about how residents live. So are most in houses or apartments and do most own or rent? Just to give you an idea of like how where the hospital is located in the surrounding neighborhood. So I think resident quality of life is very high in St. Louis. So I would say at WashU, at least a third of the residents live in the immediately adjacent neighborhood called the Central West End. It's a very nice area, depending on your views on gentrification, but it's a very uh, nice area for a resident to live. It's very affordable, but still like very nice housing, just a very high quality of life. And so, for example, um, I live a nice two-bedroom across the street from the hospital. So door-to-door -door from my apartment door to the, uh, to the operating room door, the scrub door is like a four-minute walk. That's a huge benefit. Um, so I would say, you know, like a third of the, all the washer residents live in the central West End. There's a lot of apartment buildings nearby. Coming from Boston, I was like, oh man, this is amazing. Because I remember I was like spending 1500 for like a barely livable studio like a few miles away. At first it was like a nice one bedroom, like a five minute walk away for like under a thousand. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. There's another big chunk of residents that live in the nearby neighborhood, so they often will have to drive to work. And then I, maybe like a quarter to a third of the residents will be homeowners. And so they just kind of like live a little farther away where the housing is more affordable and more appropriate for residents. So it's a good mix. And what's the breakdown of residents that are single, married, and or have kids? I would probably say it's roughly third. I would say like a third are either married or just, you know, very significantly attached. Another third are seeing people that they have fairly strong associations with. And then the other third, it's, I guess, single and dating. You know, kind of like what I said about the social situation, 
it's not dominated by any type of like social group or social expectation. There's a few residents now who have kids. Two of them recently. One is myself, but they, that was a pre-COVID baby. There's four residents out of 19 with kids. I believe to be five soon. Do you know what the policy is in terms of maternity and paternity leave? So with maternity leave, there, you can have up to six weeks of maternity leave. And for paternity leave, they're going to make it exist starting next year with up to six weeks. So this year I had, I just scheduled my vacation weeks around like a week in October and a week in November and December just to be available to help out. And also, I was on an off-service rotation the month that my baby was delivered. So I was on oculoplastics, and that was intentional. So whoever, uh, we, I discussed with the chief resident making the schedule that if they could be flexible with that, that would be great. And I'll be starting my dermatology rotation soon. And that was intentional as well. So there's ways to work around it, but it sounds like paternity leave will be more institutionalized starting next year. Is it necessary to have a car? It is strongly encouraged. So it's definitely necessary your four, five, and six year um, because you will actually be assigned to go out to West County, and that's like a 15-minute drive. If you can get by without a car as a junior resident, you know, it's possible. A lot of the grocery stores, it just helps to have a car. But yeah, it's not mandatory. You'll be at the main uh, downtown campus like 99% of the time if you live nearby or or within you know like biking distance you know that could be totally doable but I believe everyone has a car that's uh, very much within the culture to have your own car and what do you like about living in St. Louis St. Louis uh, it was great to move to it, it was a uh, new region of the country I've never lived in. So, you know, all of a sudden there's all these new states within a day trip or like a weekend trip. You know, it's been a great uh, place to live, very high quality of life. It's very affordable. So I guess I'm also like a pretty simple guy, like a lot of the cheap entertainment, like the bars, breweries, that's kind of all I need. And then, oh, another nice thing is that our hospital is right next to uh, Forest Park. I believe it's the largest like uh, civic park in the country, even larger than Central Park in New York City. And there's all sorts of things to do there. A lot of like running trails or take a dog out. I got a dog here, which is great practice for the kid. And also something that we wouldn't have been able to do if, you know, you matched like a different city. That's just a lot more expensive. I had a great time here. There's, I guess my kind of fun is just kind of hanging out with other people. And there's a lot of activities here that just kind of enable that, whether it be, you know, playing sports in the park or going to bars after a long case or post-call. It's been uh, everything, you know, I could have wanted um, as a resident. So very high quality of life here. So that's everything I wanted to talk about. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of selecting a residency? It's a difficult experience this year, which I guess is the whole point of this podcast, because, you know, without doing these sub-eyes, it's uh, tougher to evaluate the programs and vice versa. And you're also missing out on kind of the social fun aspects of traveling with like the same people 
two, like 20 of the same interviews and then just kind of hanging out and making basically friends for the rest of your life. But I guess that will happen at like either the boot camps or conferences later on. You have to talk to people that you can really trust. And when you talk to these programs, because these programs will always give you kind of like, they'll they'll put on their, their best face forward. And so they will all only tell you the good stuff. In this podcast, I think I've been able to talk about some of the things we're working on. To get the 100% accurate idea, you really need to either use whatever connections your faculty mentors at your med schools have, or if there's a recent graduates from your school that match a certain programs, or I would definitely talk to them, even if they match at a program you're not interested in, just to see like which programs they rotated at, and maybe what some of their good friends have said about other rotations, because that was, you know, that's what we did. I did four sub eyes. When you make good friends, you can say, hey, you rotated at, you know, this program. What do you think? They sound great on paper and they had a nice interview day, but what do they really like? And so you just really need to work whatever connections you have, either for mentors or, you know, residents at your program, see where they rotated. But you should be careful because you don't want to seem like you're too interested in a program that's not your home program. You just need to be like socially aware and ask deeper questions of the people that you can trust more. Because that's the only way that you can get the real scoop. Every program's gonna have a nice shiny website. Everyone is smiling in their photos. In place of being able to evaluate in person and having a larger network of fellow classmates and sub you really need to just kind of focus on getting some semblance of that in a different way. So I would say that's probably the best advice beyond, you know, all the standard stuff like, oh, get good grades, do research. If you're on a Zoom interview, if you're not going to wear pants, you know, don't stand up, stuff like that. So that's probably, I think, the most beneficial thing I can offer besides the standard no-brainer stuff you hear from everyone. How can interested applicants find out more about WashU? We have a website, a nice shiny website. You can feel free to email me for questions, David period Chi at uh, whistle.edu. And we can talk more in person if you're interested. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's been great being on this show. Best of luck to all the applicants. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.